Well, good evening. Thanks uh, for being here tonight. I'm not sure if our stream is working. If it is, hi. Hope you're all right. Uh, I know we've got several folks traveling, and that's why I'm so glad that you are here this evening. And I want to invite you to turn in a Bible or swipe on your phone Bible or grab one in the pew back in front of you. We're going to be looking at Isaiah this evening, Isaiah chapter 2, which is there around the middle of your Bible. But before we get there, I want to ask you, did you notice a theme of our songs this evening? Are we shaking our heads yes? Yes, yes. We sang, come Lord Jesus, each song. The reason we are singing this is because a new season, as Toby has mentioned, has dawned. The season of Advent. Advent is from the Latin word that means arrival or coming. And so Advent begins that four-week season right before Christmas. It's a way of preparing us for the Christmas season. And also, it is the church's new year. So if you were to follow a church calendar, maybe you grew up in a different, um, more liturgical or high church background, but there is a season, a cycle that really tells the story of Jesus. And so we start with the advent, the arrival of the one who was born a baby and yet a king. And so advent is that season and these Themes we'll be looking at each weekend leading up to Christmas and tonight, as Toby mentioned, and as our kids so eloquently mentioned, we're looking at hope. And more than that, we're going to be looking, Lord willing, in some of these glimpses that we get in the ancient prophecies of Isaiah. So join me there now in Isaiah chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 to 5. These are actually part of the church calendar readings as well. So if you were to hop into some other churches tomorrow that followed this kind of calendar, you might hear this reading or a sermon from this passage too. So Isaiah chapter 2, let's look at verses 1 to 5. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days... The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say thanks be to God. Nine years ago, I remember because the date was November 12th or 11 
12, 13. Nine years. Is my math correct? Nine years ago, my dad, cousin, and I hiked the Grand Canyon. We spent a day hiking all the way down, just like you, Bill and Sherry. And we stayed at the bottom in a lodge there. And unlike Bill and Sherry, we didn't have any raccoon visitors into our backpacks. Was it a raccoon? It was. We hiked all the way down and we stayed in a small lodge in a bunk bed with a bunch of other snoring hikers. And then we woke early before the sun rose and we set out to walk up a different trail all the way back up to the rim. It was a pretty aggressive hike. And I learned about 11 miles down and about that much coming up that your legs can get sore in two different places when you're walking down and walking up. And I was already feeling it in the wee hours in the dark, cool morning at the bottom of the canyon. And let me tell you, it was not a pleasant journey from that lodge sleeping a restless night in that bunk bed and making my way back up. But there was something that was driving me, and that something was a steak dinner. And how many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? Yeah, I'm not surprised. There's the El Tovar, like, uh, hotel or something. It's nice, but it's not, like, super nice. But I'm telling you, after a lot of beef jerky and, like, cliff bars, I was living for this steak dinner. I think my hamstrings needed some iron or sustenance in them, and so it's what helped me and propelled me all the way up as light began to dawn and slowly filtering down into the canyon. What's interesting then, too, is the change in temperature. It was always cooler at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, and then as you rose or went up, the temperature changed And then all of a sudden, light would begin to filter in more and more. Hope is anticipated joy. Hope is an anticipation of steak, and sorry, Baptist Church, a beer that day. Hope is anticipated joy. As sore as I was, as dark as it was, as cold as it was, One little step at a time up, I just kept thinking, this is beautiful, but also I'm almost through it. Hope is anticipated joy. I've also heard it said that anxiety is anticipated terror. In our world today, in your lives today, in my life today, how much are we experiencing anticipated terror or pessimism or things to go wrong? How many of our defaults is rather anticipated joy? It will be okay. We will get through Thanksgiving. We will survive on Turkey three days in a row thanks to leftovers. Our world has a lot of anticipated terror and darkness, but Advent is a light that is filtering in to the darkest places and inviting us to keep walking, to keep heading toward the light and anticipate joy without negating the darkness and the pain of our experience today. 
So as the light is pouring in from above, it illuminates your path forward, however long it takes you to get up. What are you hoping for? Maybe some of you are still in a child state of mind and you really want Santa to bring you that awesome bike or guitar or whatever. But I would venture to guess that hope is something a lot deeper. And you're longing for something. And that's why we sing these songs. Come, Lord Jesus, into our midst now. Or we'll wait until the day when you do come and renew all things and make it new. But until then, can we keep walking? So the big idea for this evening as we explore this passage in Isaiah and this theme of hope is this. We embrace hope by walking today in the light of God's tomorrow. We can put one foot in front of the other up the long elevated trail in the cold and darkness, not just because we expect a steak dinner, but because we expect that God will come, that his advent will enter into our life and situation, and ultimately into the world and recycle the pain and brokenness and darkness into something new and beautiful. And only then maybe we'll understand why we had to keep walking until then. But today we can see it and embrace it and have just enough light to say it may be a long time before people aren't sleeping outside and every tear is wiped away and people will have enough to eat. But I'm going to practice today for God's tomorrow when that will come true ultimately. This is why we do Advent every year. Advent is this in-between time where we live in between the first Advent when he came in humility. And so we look back at places and figures like Isaiah talking about that Advent, but they also look beyond to the second Advent when he'll return and finish what he started. But we can embrace hope and walk today in light of God's tomorrow. And God's tomorrow, as envisioned by Isaiah in chapter 2, is of a day where Jerusalem is elevated and the center point for the nations to come in and for justice and peace to come out. Isaiah is a prophet, and here's what a prophet is. A prophet is someone with a God-inspired imagination to see the world according to God's desire. And then they speak this reality to God's people. At the very beginning, we kind of flow, flew through it, but right at the beginning of chapter 2, it says, this is what Isaiah, son of Amoz saw. And the word there is important because it wasn't just like, oh yeah, I saw this cheesy Christmas movie last week with my kids. I saw it. I looked at it, but I wasn't really engaged with it. I saw here is this strange, different Hebrew word for like, he beheld it. He perceived it. It was something that was so real to him that he could almost taste it. It's as if he had this encounter with the Holy Spirit that gave him this sense of the light that's dawning, even though it's hundreds of years potentially removed. He got enough of a glimpse that it, it transformed his imagination. And he wrote this down and he said, can you imagine this with me? 
Because there's something about casting that vision and speaking it to God's people that says, I want to walk toward that. And when he gave this God-inspired word of imagination matters because it was in a rough, rough time. Isaiah was prophesying to kings. So Israel had kings, and then they had these prophets who weren't priests, but they were in tune with God enough to get in on what God was wanting to do. And often the prophets would speak to the kings, speak to power, and oftentimes they wouldn't be allowed into the temple courts. They'd be on the outskirts, but they'd still be shouting, saying things like, turn around and come back to God. So whether they're in the places of power or on the outside speaking into power, they were trying to cast a vision for God's desire and God's intention to bring this to pass. So Isaiah is alongside the kings and he is in a situation with a front row seat to the political and violent oppression that's knocking on their door. I don't know if you remember this, but it's important to note in our Old Testament, after King David, that would be David and Goliath, he had a son, Solomon, who was king. And then there was a little bit of a civil war that was happening in the midst of this. And not, short, not soon after, the kingdom of Israel split in two. There was a northern kingdom with ten tribes. And then there was a southern kingdom. Do you remember what that was called? We just read it. Judah. And that had two of the tribes. The 12 tribes of Israel couldn't get along for too long, so they had a civil war, and the north had those 10 tribes, and the south had two tribes, and the capital of Jerusalem was in that southern part. So Isaiah talks about this elevated powerful, beautiful image that he beheld, that he perceived God's imagination that this would be the center point of life and flourishing for the whole nations. And the king and everybody else is hearing this saying, are they going to do to us what they just did to our neighbors to the north Israel? Because Isaiah is writing this down and saying this not long after Israel got wiped out by Assyria. And Assyria, not content just to leave the northern kingdom alone, they start knocking on the door of Jerusalem and Judah. And they start saying things like, you're next. Jerusalem as the political and spiritual capital. We don't want that thing elevated. We don't want you making a name for this God. We want to wipe you off the map too. And it's precisely within this context that he has this God-inspired imagination to say, this world looks painful and dark and it's cold down here at the bottom of the valley of the shadow of death, but I see a light cresting over the rim and it may take us a long time to get up there, but start walking because God's desire is for our good and for human flourishing. And someday from Jerusalem, there's gonna become a king that will come and judge rightly and wars will cease and people will have enough to eat. We won't have to worry about our water supply being shut off and nations will stream in like rivers and they'll stream out transformed because they've encountered the living God. And they say, um, wait, 
Assyria is literally encamped around us and they're laying siege to the city and we don't have much time left. But that's why I love what Walter Brueggemann says about this vision. This vision of Isaiah moves beyond the threat without denying it. I'm convinced that Isaiah is convinced just as much about the devastation that's looming as he is the restoration that God will bring. Do you think that that's possible for Christians to look at the devastation that's right on their doorstep, this relational impasse, this financial hardship, this medical diagnosis that looks bleak, I think the only authentic Christian hope is one that can stare the looming destruction and danger right in front of them and look it in the eye and then look beyond it and say, but you don't get the last word. That's the only authentic Christian hope. Because Jesus' life, the king who will come, is a 33-year example of how he was never safe, but he was always secure in God's purpose to bring about the redemption and renewal of all things. Even when his enthronement in Jerusalem was on a cross, even when the nations stream into Jerusalem at Pentecost, And they're filled with the Holy Spirit before they stream out and tell of the world reimagined. Isaiah was just as convinced of the upcoming disaster as he is convinced of their upcoming restoration. Isn't this what hope looks like in our time and place? Your friend that's hurting and struggling and needs a word of encouragement does not need Christianese. It needs the non-anxious presence of someone to remind them that though we walk through the valley of the shadow, we do not walk alone. It needs someone to come alongside them with an Advent kind of hope that says we can walk this next step through it in hope of God's tomorrow, that he will renew and restore, and even through death, we will still be with him. So the question I have before you get to that doorstep place is what vision or image or words of hope help you look ahead in the midst of pain, anxiety, and struggle? Do some of you have a verse that you just have in your back pocket that sometimes you need to just reach back there and cling to with all your life? Yes and amen. She got a hand up ready right now because you've been through it. Deuteronomy 31.8. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. That is an excellent, oh, do not be afraid. Yes and amen. Now are we done? This is why I say the word of God for the people of God. So like, hey, I'm done. Beautiful. Deuteronomy 31.8. I hope that you have one of these. I hope that if it's not that, it's some memory of when God brought you through before. I have this thing that I'm still mulling around. Some commentators say these Hebrew people like Isaiah 
um, they, they enter into the future not like we do. They enter it uh, with their backs to the future looking back and saying, well, remember when God rescued us from the Egyptians? Maybe he'll do it again. But they go in backwards, looking back to the times that God had brought them through again and saying, we're going to keep walking forward in hopes that tomorrow is brighter and that he's going to bring us through again. I hope that you have a verse. I hope you have an image. I hope you have a story. Isaiah had an image of a city that was elevated and it's something he beheld, he perceived, it was so real, he could taste it. Just a few more comments on the text as we go to our next slide here and run through this. Isaiah's word, or this world, is seen. Those kinds of verses, those kinds of stories help us to get into our bones, where it's not just something we heard in Sunday school, but it's something that we're embodying and we've seen and tasted that the Lord is good. And as I've said a moment ago, we have God's place, God's word, God's way is elevated and central because connection to God is connection to life. One of the most recent conversations I had with someone who's not um, a Christian, we started to talk about God in terms of life with a capital L. Or as John would say, God is love. And we talked about God as love with a capital L. He had heard so many Christians talk down to him. He's a scientist for goodness sake, so he's smart. And we ended up having this long conversation because something that kind of tuned him in or, or unlocked something was to think of this one who is that he is and is life with a capital L. And he began to entertain the possibility that we do the things we do in remembering hope and peace and joy and love and we give to our neighbor. We love our neighbor because we realize that it is the way to live and elevate the world. And it's this idea that when God's place is honored, when this kingdom has come in fullness, it's for human flourishing and the nations are drawn to it. You notice that language, they stream in and out. Why do they come? If you're still looking at your text there, it says the law, the way, the instruction will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. But he's teaching us these ways so that. That's important if you're still looking at it in verse 2, verse 3. He will teach us his ways so that we will walk in his paths. How many of us go to church and we hear a sermon and we think, that's cool. He said a couple things that were vaguely interesting and I learned something new today. We don't get up here and preach and teach our kids and try to disciple them as future disciples so that they know more stuff than their friends. We learn these things so that we might live these things. Learning is for living. That's why they had 613 laws in the Old Testament, just to cover their bases and show them the way to live together. In our church, we say that our faith is not just meant to be believed, it's meant to be lived. 
because your neighbor and your family member can't see the doctrine of the Trinity when you sit at Thanksgiving dinner, but they can see how you relate to them in love and self-sacrifice. Amen? These things inform our practices. We go to be taught so that we can live it. And then this word of justice in verse 4. He will judge between nations and settle disputes. That word justice always means a restoration of balance. It's a bringing the scales back into order. So when these widows don't have enough or they're neglected, and Isaiah's gonna talk so much about this, he's going to say, look, you need to restore this imbalance. If you look back at chapter one, he says, I'm so sick of your religiosity. I'm sick of your festivals. He says, wash and make yourselves clean. He says, learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead for the case of the widow. Don't just go to church and sing about it and talk about it. Walk today in light of the day when all will be new and all will be right. So we say last week, hey, we had 100 people come to our clothes closet last Saturday. That's crazy, right? Maybe that's another little step with just a little bit of the glimmer dawning where we're just practicing for the day when we won't need to have children go to school without a jacket. Or our friends that slept outside last night. We're just practicing today for God's tomorrow. And he's bringing these disputes and settling them. And the aftermath of that is that famous phrase, that famous word. There's been reams of art and sculptures at the United Nations. There is a, uh, there is a statue, ironically given by a Russian artist, called They Will Beat Their Plows or Their Swords into Plowshares in the center of the UN. But Isaiah envisions beyond the UN, it's going to be the people of God having the way of God taught and settled so that we won't need these swords anymore. I preached this passage three years ago because it's part of this assigned lectionary that I tend to go back to in Advent because we're going to be reading so much of the Mary and Joseph story. Um, so I preached this three years ago and I talked about an artist in Mexico named Pedro Reyes that had an art installation and project uh, called um, Palas por Pistolas, Shovels for Pistols. And he would collect these guns, 1,500 of them. He'd melt them down and he'd turn them into shovels. And then Shane Claiborne, who's an author and activist, got linked up with another pastor and they started Raw Tools. You know what raw is spelled backwards? War. Because they did the same thing. In inner city Philadelphia, they said, hey, turn in your guns. We don't care if they're licensed or not. We won't ask questions. We just want them melted down and off the streets. And we'll turn them back into garden spades. It's one thing to inspire art. It's another to recycle weapons and tools of violence into tools of flourishing. It's as if Isaiah saw this city and he was seeing them beating their swords and melting down their spears and saying, what if 
the battlefields and weapons were turned into gardens and tools. What if? Can we even imagine? We can hardly imagine the wars between the Thanksgiving tables being settled. But one of my favorite preachers, Brian Zahn, said it this way. War will never end out there if we don't put an end to it in here, in our hearts. What are the tools of war that we use that continue to traffic in oppression and hatred and violence? What if my rightness was surrendered to relationship? What if my extra coats became their only coat? What if my extra pants and my kids' hand-me-downs became his and hers, and we could name names because we see them at the after-school program. We see them at our clothes closet. Come in 50-degree rainy weather in high-water pants and flip-flops. What if our extra became their only? Maybe then we are practicing for that new world that is to come. And that's why he says in verse 5, it's within reach. Come, let us walk in the way of the Lord. But we can't walk it if we can't see it. And we can't get that vision embodied into our hearts and our lives. The language of Isaiah's prophecy points to a time within time. Isaiah was imagining that this might happen before the end of it all. He said in the last days, but he's like, in the time after this desperate time, can we imagine, can we, what if, we can live like this? That's why he says, come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. My favorite Christmas carol, well, no, Christmas carols are the ones that we're going to be singing here at church. My favorite Christmas song that I won't turn the channel on the radio is John Lennon's Happy Christmas. I know one person in here knows the subtitle, but do you know the rest of the title? Happy Christmas, war is over. What does the children's choir sing toward the end of the song? War is over. Are we all going to sing this high? If you, come on, John. Want it. War is over if you want it. Thank you, Kelly. At this time, Kelly's going to come and we're going to sing Happy Christmas. <laughs> I just thought that that's, that's one thing. That's, that's a God-inspired imagination from a guy that didn't really want a God-inspired imagination. But what about somebody like Martin Luther King Jr.? What if he said the famous speech, I have a dream, and then never lived it or walked it? Never fought for equality, never tried to realize that dream that was bigger than him. It was a God-inspired dream. But what if verse 5 was not there? What if Isaiah didn't include it? What if Isaiah didn't put it right after a rough chapter 1 and a sweet spot in chapter 2 before another rough chapter 2 and beyond? What if we had no hope? There was nothing to be done. He says, no, 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 I'm just as convinced that it's going to be tough 
But I'm even more convinced that if we keep walking through it, we will see the light of God's tomorrow. It's his own version of saying, I had a dream, I saw it, I beheld it, I perceived it, so let's walk this way together. I want to close with a story and some questions. There's an old story some of you may have heard before. It's of a priest in a small village out of the way somewhere. And this priest would disappear every Friday. Every Friday morning, this priest would get up, and nobody knew where he went. So he had some disciples, you know, the church folk, the followers that, that really, really loved him. And they would explain to the rest of the villagers where he went. Oh, hmm, our priest, every Friday he ascends to heaven to talk with God. So every Friday he would slip out and disappear. And the disciples would go around saying, he's ascended to heaven so this newcomer comes into the village, and he's not buying it. And so he wonders, okay, where is this guy really going? So one Friday, this newcomer decides to hide and wait outside of the priest's house. And so without being seen, very early on a Friday, the priest gets up, says his prayers, and the newcomer watches him leave his house with an axe. And he was wearing peasant clothes. He wasn't wearing the collar. He wasn't wearing his vestments. So he follows this priest without being seen into the woods where the priest starts chopping firewood. He wraps it up and he hauls it to a little shack on the outskirts of the village and he plops it down at the front door and he knocks. And an old woman opens the door and the newcomer knew that this was the old woman that had the sick son. So the priest greets her, left her firewood for the week, and then gives her and her son food. And because this woman expected him, she brought out tea, and they sat down as he hands a blanket to the son. And they have tea and then he prays for them and blesses them. And then he slips back to his house unseen. Well, this newcomer decides to stay on in the village. And eventually he becomes one of the disciples of this priest as well. But the subsequent Fridays, when the other disciples would go and spread the word to the rest of the villagers, our priest ascended to heaven that newcomer would whisper quietly, and then he brought heaven back down to earth. This is the vision. This is the invitation. It's one thing to see it and behold it. And please, this season, I invite you to try and open your heart to a brighter and better tomorrow. But don't leave it there. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So we'll close with these reflection questions for you as we begin our Advent journey. What's your what if? It doesn't have to be as big as the city that becomes the center point for the universe. What if I gave, I stepped out, and what if I, what if, what's your what if? Second, 
What ways of injustice and war need to be recycled into relationship and flourishing in your life? And then finally, what's the first step toward God's tomorrow that you can take this week? Every journey from the Grand Canyon to Advent begins with the single step. What might the Holy Spirit be inviting you to this week? I'd like to invite the worship team to come. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Almighty and ever-living God, we are grateful for these glimpses of you and your kingdom. And we ask that you would awaken our hearts and minds to see you and to see the road ahead. I confess how imperfectly I walk it. So I pray that your grace would meet us. And as Courtney reminded us, that you would go ahead of us so we need not be afraid. May we find you in the table, not because it's magic, but because we want to be present, because we want to lean in. Would you go before us and with us in our Advent journey? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen and amen. Tonight's benediction was written by former TNC member Robin Craddock. Go now, having received the gift of hope. Through the world, though the world may seem dark and troubled, you are not bound by its rules. Turn a deaf ear to its words. Listen instead to the still small voice that whispers to you, just as it did for those in exile so long ago. May you enter into this season of Advent, this time of waiting, with a sense of excitement because of his promise. Don't be afraid of the waiting. Instead, embrace this time, this as a time to slow down, to breathe deeply, and to live fully into the moment. May you carry the light of hope with you this week, and may it not only be a lamp unto your own feet, but may you use it as a beacon for others. May you be hope bearers, pointing others to the true meaning of the season. Go in peace.